Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What exactly does Jesus mean by these words? As we consider the text of Scripture and we ask, how do we understand what the words say? How do we interpret them? What do they mean? There is an important role which we recognize, that we are called to take the text at its word. That is to say that we take it literally, that we don't look for some hidden spiritual or allegorical meaning. We don't somehow equate things for what they aren't in Scripture. The illustration of what I'm talking about in a common allegorical way that's often used, particularly in here in the present-day America, is to take all the texts that apply to the nation of Israel, particularly in the Old Testament, and say they apply to our nation. And look at blessings that are given to Abraham and to Isaac and say, well, if we just act like them, they would apply to us as well. And where there are certain truths in Scripture that point out we are called to keep God's word and obey God's word, and the Lord blesses us. We must not add to the text what is not there. Yet, on the other hand, as we say that we take the text literally, it is important to recognize that when we take the text literally, we can understand it as common grammar allows us to. And in fact, we should. When Jesus says these words, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, will never enter the kingdom of heaven, we take them literally, yet recognize that what we hear at first is not the full meaning. Because at its very basic, at its very literal meaning, what Jesus appears to be saying at first is this. You see those guys over there, the Pharisees? As long as you're a little better than them, then you've got your ticket to heaven. So just make sure you're no worse than they are. That, of course, is not what he means entirely. We should remember something about our Lord, that he is the Word made flesh who dwells among us. And as the Word incarnate, he is the one who is the master of all words, the master orator. He uses the full scope of language to convey nuances to his meanings that bring a fullness to the text that is amazing. The more you study it, the more you hear it, and the more you dwell on it. Our Lord loves to use words that have what would be known as a double entendre. John captures many of these in his text, and you've heard me share them before. He often uses hyperbole. And here, he uses actually what we would call irony. What he points out is when we think of the scribes and Pharisees, they are the ones who we would look up to as heroes and models the ones who are generous, the ones who are kind, the ones who teach, the ones who help out. You would never find them talking about others, at least not publicly. You would never find them stealing. You would never find them committing murder or other great crimes. Outwardly, they are the ones who are the epitome of society. They have their act together. Compare that to everyone else who often gossips, who might try to get ahead over their neighbor, who would do what they need to 
do what is right for them in their own eyes. What is Jesus meaning then when he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, let's look at what he goes on to say. There is kind of a double meaning here. For first of all, what he's pointing out is your righteousness, that which enters you into the kingdom of heaven, is not simply about outward action. That it goes deeper than that. You have heard it said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I tell you, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. It's not just about outward actions. Your righteousness is not simply how others see you. Oh, sure. I'm pretty confident that no one here is a convicted murderer or even a secret murderer. That we're not harboring Jack the Ripper in our congregation who goes around and just snuffs out lives every day. At least I would certainly hope not. But who of us can ever say we have never been angry with others? And in particular, never been angry with a fellow Christian? That doesn't happen in the church, does it? Sadly, we know it does. All too often, we know that congregations develop because of splits that erupt in the midst of a congregation, because of strife and turmoil. Someone is overlooked, either intentional or unintentional. Something is said, something is done, and angers flare. Who of us cannot honestly say that there has been times where we have been irritated by someone else? And, even worse, haven't tried to reconcile it. Unless your righteousness is greater than that of the Pharisees, unless you are not only pure in deed, but also in thought, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And here is a true statement. This is the same thing that Jesus said to the lawyer, who asked, what must I do to enter into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus asked him, what does the law say? Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, and Jesus responds, do this, and all is well. So there we have it. Let's go about and do that. Let's get that done. Let's clean up our actions, let's clean up our thoughts, and let's erase all that we've done. Of course, here's where the irony comes in. Because who can do that? Who can have a righteousness greater than the Pharisees? One that is not simply about outward action, but one that is pure all the way to our soul. When we hear this, it rightly annoys us, and that might be saying it too subtle. The Lord has set an impossible bar with those words. He has proclaimed to you, unless you are perfect, unless you are perfect like his heavenly Father, like our heavenly Father. Jesus isn't simply talking about the fifth commandment either. He goes on during the sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, which is to follow, and points out this is about every commandment. About adultery, he who lusts after a woman has already committed adultery in his heart. 
He who desires that which has another. The list goes on. And as we reflect and consider the law, we can't help but think, we can't help but recognize where we stand. Our righteousness is far below that of the Pharisees. It's far below what God calls and desires of us. So is that it? Is it hopeless? Are we still here stuck and with nothing we can do? Jesus goes on to point out that what matters is coming to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Just as a side note, as I was studying this text and preparing for the sermon today, I did decide to do a little search on this text. And these words of Jesus, turns out, are one of the two main passages the Roman Catholic Church uses to advocate the understanding of purgatory. Especially the final words of our Lord where he adds, you will never get out of there until you've paid the last penny. I can assure you that's not what Jesus is talking about. What he's talking about is this life. How do we handle when we recognize that we have made things wrong? And probably the first thing we should ask is who is the accuser? Who is the one who accuses us before God day and night? It's not the one we've wronged, although we can be accused by those who we have sinned against. No, there is the main accuser, the accuser of old, the one who led us into sin in the first place, the one who the writer to the Hebrews points out. This is none other than Satan who is our accuser, the one who will bring to mind all of your sins, who will remind you how you have failed God, how you have gone wrong. How then do we come to terms with him? How do we get a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees? The Pharisees, again, thought that this was done, that righteousness was achieved by what they did. That if they could just keep their hands pure, all was good. The irony is twofold. The first is what we just mentioned, how it is not simply actions that count against the Word of God, but it's what goes on to the very depths of our souls, our words and our thoughts, accuse us, condemn us, and keep us out of the kingdom of heaven. But the second way that the Pharisees were wrong is that it wasn't by our own actions that we received this righteousness. It's not through gold or silver. It's not through the labors of our hands. It's not through our making up for what we've done. We can't, as the old saying goes, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. No. Our righteousness, then, must come from a second place, an alien place, a place that is outside ourselves. And this is the point that our Lord desires for us. As we see our sinfulness, we are broken and crushed. And then the one who comes in, comes in with the word of grace. Paul points this out. It is the very reason why he came into this life. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? You, O oh sinner, deserve nothing but death. But thankfully, a righteousness has appeared apart from ourselves, 
of righteousness in Christ himself. He has given us the means by which we endure death and judgment apart from an eternal damnation in hell itself. And that is from right here, from the font. Where at that moment when you were baptized, at that moment you were crucified with Christ, your sins were paid for not with gold or silver, but with his holy and precious blood. In that moment you passed from judgment to life. And you received a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. A righteousness not just of sinful man, but the righteousness of the sinless man, the Son of God, even Jesus Christ our Lord. And having been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, having passed through judgment in the waters of baptism, having been crucified with Christ, we have also been raised with him to new life. And to our accuser, to the one who accuses us before our brethren day and night, as Martin Luther said in his great hymn, one little word can fell him. And that word is Jesus. Jesus is my Redeemer. Jesus has paid for my sins. Jesus has clothed me and made me right with God. And you have no power over me, O oh, you ancient foe. Death no longer has dominion over us, for we have died to sin. And you see, this then is why our Lord goes on to say, as you come to the altar of the Lord, and you recognize that you have disagreement with your brother, lay your offering aside. Go and reconcile yourself to him. Because we have been reconciled to Christ. We have been made right with Christ. And so why should we have disagreements with our brothers, with our sisters? Why should we let our anger rise in us when the one who has a right to be angry with us has set his anger aside and given us new life? Today, we come as ones who have seen the anger of God set aside. We've seen the judgment of God set aside. He has brought us to new life, and he has given us salvation. Today is the day that we then go forth, reveling in his life and mercy. We seek out those with whom we are distraught, and by the grace of God, we reconcile ourselves to them, bringing the love and mercy which God has shown to us to them as well, not holding to them the sins of the past any more than God has held our sins to us. For you have died and been set free from sin. So now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to Christ. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. May the righteousness of Christ sustain you now and always, and clothe you in his love and mercy, even until the day we stand before him in joy and mercy. Amen. And we rise. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We confess our faith together, confessing the Nicene Creed.